Welcome back, listeners. As the seasons shift, so do we at Nomi. Today, we're excited to unveil a fresh addition to our podcast. At Nomi, our heartbeat is collaboration and gaining diverse perspectives. And guess what? Our podcast just got an upgrade in that department. Please give a warm welcome to Maggie. Hey, everyone. Happy to be here. Maggie's arrival couldn't be more timely. She's joining us for a special episode focused on perspectives, exploring the intricate dance between realism, optimism, and pessimism. I can't wait to dive into this discussion and share my insights. Speaking of insights, Maggie's unique viewpoint is now a permanent feature on our podcast. With her journey from client to coach and her experience as a teacher, Maggie has been an invaluable asset to Nomi, mostly from behind the scenes until now. We're delighted to officially announce that Maggie is now a regular voice on our show, bringing her wisdom and energy to each of our episodes. And what a better way than to start with today's topic. It's particularly relevant if your New Year's motivation is waning and you find yourself grappling with feelings of depletion. You're not alone if you've been dubbed a negative Nelly recently. We'll unpack all of this and more in just a little bit. Thanks for tuning in and let's jump right into today's episode. Now that I feel a little bit more settled into 2024, I am finding myself to be fighting a little habit that comes up, especially when I'm feeling risk averse or there's a lot of uncertainty. It's rearing up this habit of mine to label things, right? To label how the year is, how it's going to be, how I want it to be. And there's so much of it that I find really helpful, but I'm really resisting these labels because I don't know what it's going to be like, but I still want to have some sort of mental structure so that I know what to look for. And it's sending me reeling. What do you guys, are you guys having a similar experience? Where does that land with you? Yeah. One of the things that I'm having trouble with is this concept of that I have to be finished up or wrapped up for 2023. And so what happens is I end up stuck in this limbo land where I had like this, woohoo, it's January. Here we go. Carefree letting go. And then I'm like, I'm not ready to leave those things in 2023 and fully embrace this huge list, right? Or these big items in 2024. And so what do I do with that? Yeah, that brings up a good point. I think I've had times in my life where I've had like really not so great years. And then when the new year starts, you are left feeling like, okay, what do I do with this not so nice year? And now it's a new year. How do I like reconcile both of them? How do I not let the year I just had totally taint sort of this new year? For those of you that can't see right now, because Maggie did some thumbs up while she was talking, there are fireworks behind her, which is very new year. So rally forth. Yeah, that we'll take that as a good omen, right? Yay, fireworks for New Year. But yeah, it's it's hard to reconcile the year that we just had with the year that we're walking into. How do I choose who I want to be? How do I choose my outlook on life? All that good stuff. While you two were talking about the energy of the new year, I think both of you use that phrase in one way or another. It made me think about the fact that the new year is in in and of itself a perspective, right? It's a new Mm. year, has a loaded charge to it. We tend to see the 
new year, the novelty, the turning of a new leaf, the blank slate as this one giant perspective. So when I say happy new year, I with that comes all of these wishes of new energy, new motivation, new goals, new everything, right? It's not just happy January 1st. No one actually cares about January 1st. We all care about the opportunities that we have that are built into the new year experience. And so mm. that perspective, I feel, withers as we settle back into what is residual from 2023. And a big part of that is that we tell ourselves that because we have that December 31st wall, that we should just be able to embrace this novelty and a lot of things will just button up themselves because it's January yeah. 1st. Yeah. Those were December 31st problems. Everyone starts January 1st as an optimist, right? It seems like everything around us is full of endless possibility and hope and then, yeah, as we hit like week two and three of January, it's, ooh, not everyone is an optimist or other things. Life starts, life keeps moving, right? And you use the term blank slate, Madeline. And I think that one of the things that sort of slows us down or stops us is that there's no such thing. We have an ever evolving life. And so if our life is a slate, there's no way that it's ever going to be blank. How do we reconcile that? I fall into that trap a lot, thinking that it is going to be a blank slate. No, it's not. It really is important for us to look at the reality. The reality is that we're talking about embracing change. We're talking about looking for opportunities or really realizing what the hardships are. We're not talking about a blank slate that you get to recreate. Yeah, I hear this. And also what comes up is around mental clutter. I spent four days decluttering the room that I'm sitting in and that physical space decluttering was really cathartic. And I think that we try and do a lot, or at least I do, I try and do a lot of mental decluttering around the end of the year. That's the whole learning cycle. New year, every year starts with optimism, as Maggie put it. Everyone's an optimist on January 1st. But then that decluttering project, you know, like when you're cleaning the room and then you get everything into the middle of the room and then you lose steam. I feel like sometimes mm. that's where I land around this point in January where I've started to do a lot of the bigger tasks and now I'm into the minutia. And it's a really hard wall to get beyond because the, the, the grand perspectives or the moving of the furniture in my physical world can only get me so far. At some point, I have to sit down and actually throw th some things out and move some things to a new location and solve the problem behind the problem in order to actually keep the space clean. And all that comes crashing around mid-January. And I'm like, I don't want to. I lost energy. <laughs> mm, yeah, that I can relate to that. And it can feel it's really sticky when you get in that situation, because at least for me, the tendency is to almost slip into beating myself up a little bit. Like I look back on the calendar and two weeks prior, I was full of like that hope and that steam and that optimism and the like, let's go, let's clear the space. And then you're right, it comes to a screeching halt and you're looking at the pile in the middle of the room and you're like, what the heck happened? You start beating yourself up. Why couldn't I get through this? What does this mean for the year ahead if I can't figure this out like second week in January? And it just can be like really overwhelming. I have a confession. And the confession is that I tend to end a year at rapid speed. And so the reality for me is I get tired. I need actually to give myself, if I'm really listening to the rhythm of me, I don't have any regrets of going full speed through the end of the year because 
It's mainly joyful things. It's taking advantage of all sorts of opportunities, but it's exhausting. So I get swept up in the party line of that I need to be running full steam at the beginning of the race if we consider the first of the year to be the beginning of the race at the same speed as I ended. But the reality is I'm tired. And I hear you, Maggie. I do the, Cynthia, you're disappointing yourself. And I don't allow myself to just really give myself what I need, which is rest and restore. And maybe it's going to take me the whole month of January to just gather some speed or gather some perspective. That's the kind approach. I feel like in reality, what happens, at least what happens for me, is that I hear you on all that and I too feel that exhaustion. But then I, this internal like judge tells me, well, you're just being a negative Nelly now, Madeline. Like you can't even last two weeks in the year without complaining about how tired you are or complaining about these things or blah, blah, blah. And I I don't know what to do with that sometimes because this is like that fine line between realism and pessimism. What you're talking about with the exhaustion, like that's when reality hits, when the January 1st optimism can only get you so far because there's other contexts going on. So there's this nuance between what is returning to reality from this New Year's fantasy land and what is actually straying into a a, a legitimate perspective on life that is quite pessimistic. Yeah, I love what you just said because it's the ultimate example of what Cynthia was saying a few minutes ago about how we are not blank slates come January 1st. You're right. When all of that stuff is creeping back in, I love the question you just tossed out, right? How do we, what do we do with it now that we've bumped back into it? Where, what is the line between realism and pessimism? And how do we negotiate that? How I attack that is that I look at the middle road. We talk a lot about binaries not being necessarily really helpful, right? And so optimism and pessimism, in my mind, are two extremes. And so perhaps realism. It sits somewhere in the middle. It's not necessarily about living a life that is all joy or all sorrow or all optimism and all pessimism. It, it really is about finding a way to find to just be rocking and rolling in the middle, in the okayness, in the I I call it in the reality where there is some hope. And there is some despair. The middle can be scary, right? I think that is, it's like a courageous choice to err on the side of like realism or in the middle because a lot of times we're defaulting on either side, right? We're defaulting into the joy or the sorrow or defaulting into the pessimism or the optimism. And so to steer ourselves closer towards the middle, it's unknown, it's uncomfortable, and it can be really scary. Yeah. Mm. And I think as well, though, This is maybe, I don't know if I disagree with realism being in the middle or I disagree with where it actually lands, but I used to think that realism was that middle ground. However, I've had several conversations with friends and clients recently about realism because they feel they're being realistic, but they seem to be coming off as pessimistic. And I think Mm. it's because when we think about a realistic perspective on life, we tend to tell ourselves that realism is all about objective facts, right? But we can't trust our brains, especially when we've trained them to pick up on negative bias over and over again. So then if your brain is just looking out for danger and kind of, quote unquote, bad things and whatever, then your sense of realism is going to have a very pessimistic tint to it. And so when you were speaking earlier, mom, the word that came up is balance, right? It's about Mm -hmm. if realism is about what things are, we have to put a little effort into realism, knowing that our brains might come to the table, especially when we're exhausted and conserving our resources with 
things being or what things are being challenging or hard or this. And we need to use the remaining energy to choose the other side of the perspective to create that balance within realism. Otherwise, realism isn't really a middle ground place. It ends up Mm -hmm. being something we feel very proud of being objective. And I'm like, it doesn't really seem super objective to me. You seem to just think that everything is crap. You're hitting um, the nail right on the head with that. In the Positive Intelligence book, he talks about one of the things that we have to get in the habit of doing, which is allowing ourselves to overcome those negative bias. They always get to the party first. That is how we're hardwired. So we do need to train ourselves to, before we feel like we're in the neutral, balanced middle, that we have invited some opportunity to come into the party as well. I'm just thinking in my own life here, and I love what you were saying, Madeline, because I think I hid behind realism a lot of times. And so I was always walking around with this mentality of waiting for the other shoe to drop because Hyatt's life. Realistically, right, things will not go 100% perfectly 100% of the time. And so I was like, oh, I'm just being a realist, right? Something crappy is probably going to pop up. That was tinging my glasses that I was wearing in the world, right? I was attaching to that negative bias, like you were just saying, and not being aware of maybe like the thoughts that were driving that belief or whatever. So it's definitely an invitation to dig a little bit deeper and to be more curious instead of just being like, oh, I'm being a realist. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Curious. Obviously, we use this word every single episode, but like realism to me is really covertly curiosalism. (laughs) Curiosalism. It's the new term. But no, I don't actually think you can be a proper realist if you're not a good data collector, because that's what it is, Mm -hmm. is it's if realism is about objectivity, quote unquote, then it's about having a handle on the data, having a handle on the reality. And so if you know that you're in a place in your life or in a in circumstances that make you bias in one direction, then a good realist, a proper realist, a practiced realist needs to use that curiosity to collect all of the data points available because a perspective is a lens, not a conclusion. We're not looking to conclude about the world with our perspectives. So if I take X, put it in glasses and put that on my face, what am I going to actually pay attention to here? But it's not concluding that those glasses are now super glued to your face. It's just about that balance in data collection. So curiosalism is my new fake word. And when people ask me if I'm a pessimist or an optimist, I'm going to tell them I'm a curiosaliminalist. Sounds like a dinosaur. I like it. But I just I like what you're saying, because what was like realism now that we're talking about it, it's flexibility, right? So when we are being realistic about what's happening, and like you said, we're being curiosalism dinosaurs, we have the ability to be flexible with our thoughts, our beliefs, our emotions, we can pick and choose. It's really this position of just being a creator, right? Versus just being like this victim of circumstance, which I think is super powerful. But easier said than done. And this is where really using our emotions as data collecting opportunities or informational is really helpful. I I like to boil it down to two things. As I think I'm sitting somewhere in the middle in healthy realism, I'm not even going to attempt to say that word, the curiosity, whatever. But what I do is I ask myself the question of, am I feeling like I'm coming from a place of love or am I coming from some sort of place of fear? And when I talk about fear, most of us can think about what 
bucket some of the other emotions fall into. Like when I say to you guys, frustrated, what bucket are you going to put that in? The fear or the love bucket? Fear? Excuse me? Fear for 20? Ding, 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 ding. Right? Yeah. And if I say hope, what bucket are you going to put that in? Love. Love. But that's really important, right? For us to realize that there's data in how we're feeling, to pay attention to that. And if it's fear-driven, we back away and we are. We're probably leaning more toward the real pessimism than we are leaning toward the real optimism. Yeah, Cynthia, I liked what you were saying about love and fear and using those as guideposts for how we're moving throughout the world. I think what I'm trying to wrap my head around is how that might actually look from like an actionable standpoint as we're bumping into situations or circumstances. How would I use those? So I'll give you a real life example. I was feeling disconnected from, let's call them friends, right? And connected with other people in other ways, but not really in a kind of friendship way. And so I was thinking about that. And one of the things I realized was I was feeling disconnected because I was sitting in fear that if I made a bid towards someone that I was really interested in growing the relationship, the friendship, that I would be rejected. You'd think at my age, that wouldn't be a fear. It's been a somewhat of a fear, probably since I was a kid, if I'm going to be really honest. And I actually had a really great conversation with Madeline, who reminded me as she was hearing me come up with all of the reasons why I was feeling the way I was feeling and really addressing that there was this underlying fear where she said, mom, you just have to be brave. And reach out and, and invite that person for a lunch or a walk, or would they want to do an exercise class with you or something like that, or really be super brave and just say, hey, do you want to be my friend? I'm proud to announce that I was brave. I did some asks and some asks were not received with resounding hell yeah that I was maybe hoping for, but that was okay because some asks were. I was listening to an audiobook, and I promise this is relevant to what you were just talking about, but I was listening to an audiobook about the 12-week year. It's one of these productivity things. And I don't, I'm not decided yet how much I'm going to get out of it. But in one of the tee up chapters where they talk for like at least 100 pages before giving you the point of the book because they have to bulk out the words, they had this interesting chapter where he was talking about the risk aversion and the amygdala, meaning that when we look at our lives too far in the future and we it looks the place we want to be looks really different from where we are now, that ambiguity triggers our fear mindset and basically our amygdala. And our amygdala's job is to help us stay alive. And so it creates like avoidance tactics. And I think when it comes to love or fear, we don't realize that a lot of times when we're coming from a fear place, it's because we've ballooned the thing. And so that this huge feeling of solving for loneliness or solving for isolation or solving for depression or solving for any overwhelm, like these things are so big that, of mm. course, when you're in that place, it's going to be hard to imagine yourself as anywhere else, never mind in joy. That's way too far on the opposite side of the spectrum. What would a little bit of a love mindset or coming from a place of love look like, right? How can I really find like one of the small pieces of this bigger problem that feels more manageable? When we solve for big things, we're going to avoid oftentimes the entire problem 
because we put ourselves in that state of fear, overwhelm, and our body shuts down and our minds shut down and we just avoid the whole kipping caboodle. I love that point. And thank you for sharing that, Cynthia, because I think it's true. As you were talking and as Madeline was talking, I was imagining our scale, right? If that's what we're determining it is. Some like it, some don't, right? Optimism, pessimism, and realism. As Cynthia was sharing her story, I'm like, ooh, you were in that space of realism as you were working through it because you allowed yourself to be flexible and to consider the different perspectives and possibilities of what might happen. Like Madeline was saying, if I do this ask of somebody who's already pre-existing in my life, what might happen? If I don't, you weren't necessarily getting caught up in this pessimism, which is way over here, which is no one wants to be my friend, or this optimism, which is golden retriever puppy, which is like everybody wants to be my friend. You landed in this place of realism with a pretty satisfactory result, it sounds, right? Which is, yes, yeah, some invitations weren't received as enthusiastically as I as hope, but some were as well. And I loved what you said, Madeline, about bite-sized pieces. It's great to dream and it's great to hope and it's great to want all of it. But what are the rungs on the ladder that are going to get me to the top of the roof and not overwhelming that I, the only way that I'm going to allow myself to get to the top of the roof is a single bound, like Superman. If we can look at what would be a rung for us that would at least move us in the direction of the top of the roof and also give us time to be flexible, like you said, Maggie, and say, oh, do I really want to go to the roof? I'm, I'm three rungs up now, and, and I'm thinking that this isn't really as rewarding as I thought it was going to be. So I might want to go down to the bottom, move my ladder, and go to a different place. But I'm still going to do it one rung at a time so it doesn't overwhelm me. And a big part of this, I think, is that we only think of the binary on either side of this scale. So... Mm. How often do you wake up in a crappy mood and just try to get to neutral? We often mm -hmm. tell ourselves, I, the perspective I need to take needs to go so far in the other direction. It doesn't like it doesn't stick. It doesn't feel natural. It feels forced. Mm -hmm. It feels like mm -hmm. you're trying to lie to yourself. When we talk about affirmations or intentions or anything like this, a lot of times this comes up of like, can't I just lie to myself. And I'm like, well, if it feels like a lie, it's not going to work. I love this ladder metaphor. What's the next rung? Not in your mission to joy. That might be too extreme right now. But in your mission to neutrality, in your mission to net zero, if you're feeling burnt out and exhausted and you have a lot going on in your reality that makes it really challenging, how can you just get to net neutral? What would that look like? And the way you'll guide yourself is going to look very different than if you were trying to completely transform your life so that your cheeks hurt so much from smiling that your face was going to fall apart. I don't know. But mm. we spend so much time thinking only about the jump over the middle that we don't think about what it is, that it can be enough to just be in the middle and attain that neutrality. And I'm thinking back to like how we started talking today, which was imagining Madeline, you in your room of all the things that you had pulled off the shelves and as you're cleaning and organizing. And I feel similar, right? Where we're like two weeks in, three weeks into the new year, whatever time it is, who knows? And all of a sudden have totally lost our steam. Do we have to just walk away from the pile of stuff and leave it there for like an entire year? Do we have to focus on putting every little bit and bob back where it belongs? No, we can look at the next rung on the ladder or like you said, aim towards a little bit of neutrality and try to just diffuse some of that. I think the world is always telling us that we do need to reach for those extremes. That's what a competent person is or that's what an optimistic person is. And that's our goal is to be an optimistic person or to be 
joyful all the time. And the world also tells us that it's not okay to be sad or not motivated or whatever. That's a bad thing, right? And here we go again with those binaries, good and bad. What if we just toned the volume down of the outside world, turned the volume up on the inside world and just said, it's okay for me to be okay and just Mm -hmm. stay in okay for as long as I want to stay in okay. I could have a lifetime of okay and be okay. And that leads me actually, Maggie, I love that you brought back the original story because being okay or getting to okay or staying in okay, another word for that in the physical cleaning world was how can I get to functional? Like how can I get Mm. my cleaning space to a place where I don't have to undo everything I've done or shove it in a box or burn it all to the ground. But how can I just get this space to be functional until I have more energy? And there's two parts of this. One is understanding my current needs. So being present to what matters for me right now, right? I don't have time to keep going through this cleaning, but I need this space to be functional. So how can I compromise with myself around the fact that, yeah, I wish I could do all those piles, but there, a couple of them are just going to have to be sitting in the side until I have more energy. And the second part of that is faith, which is trusting myself that I'm going to have more energy one day. Those piles are not going to be there forever. I'm going to be able to find a second wind on this project. It's just not right now. I need to honor my current needs and my current state so that I can function within my life, my space, my brain, my mind, and then have additional faith at the same time, not or, that just because I'm saying not right now doesn't mean that it's not ever. Correct. Yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. That illustrates, I think, very well the shades of okayness. Your okay looks very different from one day to another. Which is really mindfulness. That is the whole thing is that honestly, what we have control over, what we have more influence with is the here and now. And to check in with ourselves on a daily basis to see where I want to fall on the okayness gray scale. Am I doing something that's going to push me out of okayness one way or another? And if so, maybe I want to back away from that, right? And maybe I want to move toward something else. So it really is about, sure, have those dreams and also look back, have those reflections where you're like, wish I had done that a little differently or whatever, then really be present in the today because that's where all of the change and all of the magic happens. It's about that and, right? <laughs> Stringing it all together with and, it always comes back to and, right? And, um, yeah. The present and the future, the pessimism and the optimism equals the realism, right? It's not about mm-hmm. or, it's about holding many things to be true. That Mm -hmm. is the hardest part of it, but it's also the most rewarding part of it. And it's also the most rewarding part of it. So I think if realism is something that you want to strive toward, figure out where your oars are and find out how to turn them into ands, right? Mm, Try, Try to hold space for both. And the better you get at that, the more realism stays realism in that balanced place and doesn't tip one edge or the other. I was talking to someone the other day and sharing my balance story. And the balance story was that I was really fixated on that scale of optimism, pessimism, being dead even and keeping it that way. And then a very wise person, actually my therapist, 
Her name was Madeline. And she said to me, Cynthia, you know that we have this thing called gravitational pull and our earth is always moving ever so slightly. But if you're fixed in one spot, eventually you're going to fall over. So this is where I circle back to mindfulness, where every day I might have to make a little tiny adjustment so I don't fall over about what my balance is. Yes. So I think we've covered quite a bit as we usually do and hopefully enough practical in there to take some things forward. It's really these things, realism, optimism, pessimism, perspectives, choice, et cetera, they seem so high level, which is why uh, I really love in coaching sessions, working through this with practical examples. So appreciate everyone's breaking it down in this call. And of course, if anyone has any further follow-up questions, you can always email us at podcast at nomi.coach. And you can check out our YouTube channel where we go into some more detail about these things If you, in case you want some more education or exploration or practical exercises for that. So thank you, everyone, for being with us. And before we wrap up, we, of course, have to do the most important part. Cynthia, do you have a quote? I do. And it is an original. Your perspective is your power. Even in the face of emotional overwhelm, reclaim the narrative of your life with resilience and self-compassion. We love a Cynthia original. By the end of this, we'll have one of those little Nomi quote books that people can get of all the Cynthia originals. Oh, and it could Um, be on people's coffee tables. I love it. I love it. We love that. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for being with us today. We hope you got something out of this, especially if it helped you to deepen your relationship to self and others. We will see you in a couple of weeks. And until next time, be well. Thanks for listening to the Nomi Podcast. If you have found our show to be helpful, please pass it along. Madeline and I are hoping you will join us in creating a ripple effect of mental health and well-being. This is Cynthia and Madeline asking you to be good to you.